Good morning. I'm happy to be up here again with you today. Uh, Let's start with a quick word of prayer. Dear God, thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning. Please show us more of who you are in this time of worship. May the hymns, the scripture reading, and even my meager words draw us closer to you. May we come to better understand you and your call for our lives. Guide our minds and hearts this morning. Inspire us. Amen. So I took a trip to Morocco a few years ago. And during that trip, my friend Veronica and I spent a couple days in the desert. We hopped on an overnight bus and rode from Fez to a small village where we waited to catch a cab uh, out to the desert outpost. The sun hadn't come up yet, and it was freezing. I really didn't think that my coldest experience ever would be in Africa, but I guess I didn't really understand desert climates very well. Anyway, by the time we hopped in the taxi, my fingers were frozen stiff and I could barely buckle myself in. As we rode off into the desert, a pale light began to fill the sky. I waited eagerly for sunrise and for warmth, and it came just as we stepped out of the cab. We stared at the horizon, and then, boom, sun, too much sun. As if a switch was flipped, everything was on fire, and I had to turn away from the very thing I'd been desperately wishing for. It was bright and hot and too much to handle. And I imagine both the Israelites and Jesus' disciples felt similarly when Moses and Jesus each shone with God's glory. It was a little too much to handle. In Exodus 34, Moses ascends Mount Sinai, meets God, and returns with two new tablets and a renewed covenant, a covenant between God and the people. They're new tablets because Moses had just broken the originals a chapter or two earlier when he discovered that the people, in their restlessness at his prolonged absence, had created a golden calf to worship. Moses was not pleased, and neither was God. But Moses talks to God and begs God to take the people back, and God agrees, sends Moses um, back, and Moses goes back up the mountain and then back down with instructions on how God's chosen people need to operate in this world. This Exodus story is alluded to in Jesus' transfiguration, where he too ascends a mountain, and this time accompanied by a few close disciples. He meets Moses and Elijah, and himself begins to shine. While there are many similarities between these two uh, stories, I'm going to focus on two. The first one is that God's glory descends upon both Moses and Jesus in those moments to prove their true identity. And what do I mean by that? Well, looking closer at Moses' story, we see that uh, the people's creation of the golden calf was in large part a rejection of Moses and his position as intermediary between God and the people. Moses has been away for a long time talking with God on the mountain, and the people get restless. So they approach Aaron uh, to make them new gods, saying, as for this fellow Moses, we don't know what happened to him. After everything Moses had done for them, their first reaction to his prolonged absence isn't even, we don't know what happened to him. Let's send out a search party. No, it's in effect, 
Well, that guy Moses who rescued us from Egypt? Not really sure what happened to him, so let's start doing the very thing he'd hate the most. And Moses' brother is like, yeah, sounds like a good plan. I'd be pretty upset too if I were Moses. So to ensure that the people are in no doubt of who Moses is and the position that God has given him, when God sends Moses back down the mountain a second time, there's a little surprise in store for Aaron and the people. Moses is shining. The skin of his face radiates light, or it might have looked like two horns of light extending from his head. The Hebrew is unclear. But the fact remains that Moses is now physically set apart from the people. They cannot doubt that he speaks for God. From then on, when Moses is not relaying God's messages to the people, he covers himself with a veil, probably to make a distinction between his own words and God's words. Moses is the intermediary between the people and God. There's no reason to doubt, and there's no reason for a golden calf. Similarly, in our gospel story, the transfiguration is preceded by a conversation about who Jesus really is. As they're traveling, Jesus asks his disciples, well, who do people say I am? And they reply, well, some think you're John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say another you know, generic prophet. And even though Peter gets it right and tells Jesus that he's the Messiah, Peter doesn't seem to understand what that means. He immediately rebukes Jesus when Jesus tells the disciples of his plan to get himself killed and then rise again in three days. Even Peter doesn't understand the implications of Jesus' position as Messiah. So, to show the disciples exactly who they're dealing with, Jesus ascends a mountain, talks with Moses and Elijah, proving that he's neither man, and then he too starts glowing. It's one thing to call Jesus the Messiah, but it's another to be confronted by the supernatural reality of that title. Peter is dumbfounded. Sadly, not struck speechless. He's able to blurt out some nonsense about commemorating this occasion by constructing some tents for Jesus and his guests. Um, and then he's cut off, perhaps mid-sentence, by the voice of God. God says, this is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Listen to him. If he says that he needs to die and that he'll rise from the dead, listen to him. Believe him. Trust him. This experience was so powerful for those who witnessed it that it becomes the event future generations reference to prove the truth of their faith. We read in 2 Peter, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice come from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic message more fully confirmed. You will do well to be attentive to this, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. We're not making this up, they say. We saw it with our own eyes. We know who Jesus is, and that's the hope that will sustain us. So what do we learn from this common thread in these two stories? 
What I read is that God stands up for the faithful. The people doubted Moses. The disciples didn't really understand who Jesus was. God solves those problems. There are plenty of times in our own lives where we can begin to doubt our identities. We don't see this in the text, but knowing that Moses wasn't always the most self-assured person, I do wonder how his people's betrayal hit him personally. We read that he immediately gets back to work defending the people, the fairy people who had left him for dead on a mountain. But I wonder if he encountered some self-doubt. Even if he didn't, I know I do, and I bet you do too. And what I read in these stories is that God shows up for the faithful in profound ways. When we doubt ourselves or when we encounter doubt from outside sources, God reminds us of who we are. God calls us beloved. I remember a time when I was doubting my self-worth and kind of doubting the trajectory of my life. Uh, so as I often do when I need comfort, I read the Psalms. In Psalms 86, the psalmist is going through a rough patch as well and asks God, show me a sign of your favor. So I did too. And God did. I remember feeling particularly low as I was catching an Uber ride to a work event. Um, the driver and I began talking, and the ride basically turned into an inexpensive therapy session. The driver told me exactly what I needed to hear, affirming and encouraging me. I believe that conversation was a gift from God. I believe that God wants to grant us experiences like that, experiences that encourage us and allow us to feel God's presence. God shows up for us. God shines in us and through us when we are open to it. The second similarity in these two stories I'm going to highlight is the Israelites and the disciples' reaction to the shining. Fear. They're terrified. When Moses comes back down the mountain with the new tablets, his face, his face shining, Aaron and the people won't draw near at first. We read in Exodus, when Aaron and the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face was shining and they were afraid to come near. Any manifestation of God and God's power is terrifying. We see this here, we see this when angels show up throughout the Bible. We see lots of examples of fear being people's first reaction to God. I think this conflicts with the image of God many of us have created. In reaction to the image of God as an old man sitting up in the sky, ready to cast lightning bolts upon the faithful, We've imagined God as a docile friend and playmate who just wants to listen to our problems and fix them. And that's not what the biblical witness teaches us either. The fear of the Lord is an important theological concept, and some theologians argue a proper way to understand right relationship with God. Ellen Davis, a theologian at Duke University, says if we can experience that power, God's power, close up and not be gripped in our guts by the disparity between God and ourselves, then we are in a profound state of spiritual slumber, if not acute mental illness. But the fear of the Lord isn't the sort of terror you had with monsters under your bed as a kid. It's not a fear that produces anxiety. It's not paralyzing. It's a fear that produces awe, wonder, and trust. It's a fear that reminds us that God does not fit in our box or any box. God does not conform to our image. 
As God meets Moses on the mountain for the second time, God passes before Moses, revealing the divine glory and telling Moses exactly who God is. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7 say, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And just before that, in Exodus 33:19, God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God is very clear about who God is. But God is also very clear that God's actions cannot be predicted or controlled. Judgment and mercy alike are in God's hands. And that can seem unsettling. We encounter verses like Exodus 34, 7, where God talks about punishing future generations for the mistakes of their ancestors. And I don't know about you, but that unsettles me. It doesn't sound like justice to me. I don't want to skip over this part of the passage, though I confess I don't have it figured out. Uh, so let's briefly touch on some scholarly perspectives. The words of Exodus 34, 6 and 7 are, a, are found throughout scripture. It's probably a very old formula used liturgically by the believing community as a confession of faith. But this formula doesn't always include verse 7, the statement about punishing future generations for the sins of their parents. Some scholars say that its absence in these places de-emphasizes it, um, that it's not central to God's character. Some say it's added in here because of the Israelites' recent apostasy. Just beforehand, the Israelites had abandoned God in favor of the golden calf, uh, so it might be emphasizing the severity of their transgression and God's graciousness in taking the people back so quickly. Personally, I wonder if this statement about God connects to uh, the idea of natural consequences. Mistakes we make do have lasting impacts. Even if we repent, are forgiven, and move forward, God doesn't wave a magic wand and change the timeline. God doesn't hop in God's 1982 DeLorean or insert your favorite imaginary time machine here and rewrite the past. Generationally, we see the effects of sin lingering, destroying relationships, plaguing families, and leading to systems uh, to systemic problems like racism or climate change. God grants us agency. We can make our own decisions, and so we must deal with the consequences of those. God doesn't sweep sin under the table, and while we may not like all the implications of that, that is also our hope. That God's sense of justice and capacity for mercy is greater than our own. I'm not convinced that my answer is sufficient, so I certainly don't fault you if you're not convinced either. But I guess what I'd like to say about all of this is that one of the beauties of faith is that we have our whole lives and beyond to continue questioning and investigating. God isn't threatened by our doubt. God isn't scandalized by our questions. God wants to walk with us, and God will continue to be at work in spite of and even through our doubts. But God doesn't answer to us. As we wrestle with God like Jacob and doubt like Thomas, we can still have hope that despite our actions, justice and mercy will prevail.
We may not always understand what this looks like, and in fact, it often looks different than we want it to. Think of the prodigal son's brother. His reprobate brother returns home after squandering the family wealth, and what does the father do? He throws him a party. That doesn't feel like justice to the brother who has been good and faithful this whole time. But Exodus tells us that God will be gracious to whom God will be gracious, and merciful to whomever God chooses. We don't get to decide. And this is good news, because, let's be honest, we often don't know what to do. We might think we do, but how many times has your perfect plan turned into the perfect storm? Back in fifth grade, I tried to lead a revolt against my science teacher. It's true. Confession time. Uh, she had made my friends stay an extra hour after school to complete a lab project, uh, a project that reduced my friend to tears. And I saw this as injustice. How dare the teacher cut into her free time and cause her emotional strain just to analyze onion cells under a microscope. I created a petition, a petition stating our grievances and passed it around the classroom for signatures. It was quickly intercepted by our humanities teacher, and somehow the only thing that ever came of it was a stern word from my parents directed at me, not the evil science teacher. I may have had a clear sense of justice and injustice, but I didn't have a sense of the larger picture. I didn't understand why a teacher wouldn't be fired for inconveniencing her student. God knows better than we do. And we don't have to fear failure or change or anything else if we fear God. That's what the fear of the Lord does. It casts out all other fears. It allows us to trust in a God that cannot be managed or contained. So today we can think about what do we fear? On a micro level, maybe it's turmoil at work. Maybe it's relationship issues. Maybe it's illness. On a macro level, it's an election year. I bet a lot of us have fears about that and the direction of our country. And we don't have to fear these things. This doesn't mean we don't have to act. Fear of the Lord manifests itself as faithful action, not physical or spiritual paralysis, and not frantic acts of self-preservation. It does not entrap us, rather it frees us. When our minds are no longer cluttered with fears and anxieties, theological imagination has room to flourish. We can get, begin to imagine what is possible, not in our own power, but in God's power. It's the fear of the Lord that results in courageous acts like those of Martin Luther King Jr. during the Civil Rights Movement, or Oscar Romero, who spoke out against injustice against the poor in El Salvador. The fear of the Lord is active in organizations like International Justice Mission that rescue people from slavery and violence. It's active locally through the work of World Relief, who care, uh, an organization that cares for immigrants and refugees, and Brem Cascadia, whose focus is on how the church and artists can work together for the betterment of both. And it's active here at First Covenant. Just last week, Deanne was telling us about the power of our prayer partner ministry where youth are supported through mentorship and prayer. And I'm sure you can think of other examples of how the fear of the Lord plays out here.
And I'm sure you can think of ways that we could live into it more. As Moses descends the mountain, aglow with the glory of God, the Israelites recognize the awesome power of God, the otherness that sets God apart. That, uh, the otherness that sets God apart and keeps God from being under their control and under our control. And as they do, God welcomes them into relationship. Moses calls the people to action, to establish a society that doesn't use God for its own ends, but operates in relationship with God, allowing God to freely move, to break down, and to build up. Through Moses, God tells the people how to live in a godly society. And yes, there are a lot of laws involved with that. The Torah is filled with laws and practices that were foundational to the community. Um, but Walter Brueggemann, I'm definitely on a Walter Brueggemann kick here, as you'll see if you come to Sunday school as well. Um, he explains that the law was never supposed to be the focus. The law was not and is not rigid, as we might think. Laws were added, laws were removed. It was not the call of the Hebrew people to live by a set code of laws. It was the call of the Hebrew people to enter into a covenant relationship with God. And this is still true today. God is still speaking to the community of the faithful. We can't wander off into solitude with our Bibles and think we have everything we need. We need community. We need spiritual practices that keep us in conversation with God. We need the wisdom of the cloud of witnesses. We need imaginations that are inspired by our understanding of God, and we need to act in ways that put God's desires first. The disciples who ascended the mountain with Jesus were terrified by what they saw. And it was that fear, the recognition that Jesus was so beyond them, that inspired the next generations to faith and called them to action. As I reflect on the two truths, that God shows up for God's faithful and that God is so much greater than I realize, the common message I hear is that I can trust God. I can trust God to be with me, but I can also trust God to be greater than me. When I need comfort, when I feel abandoned or confused or unsure of my own self-worth, I can ask God to show me a sign of God's favor, and I can expect God to act on my behalf. And when I get a little too big for my britches, when I begin to create God in my own image, I can expect God to burst through the bonds of my expectation and remind me that God is God and I am not. And thank God for that.